This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, our seminar on freedom. I'm really delighted today to be joined by two old, old friends, even though they're not old, uh, but I've known them most of their lives. One is Leif Carlson, who's about to be a rising freshman at Cal Poly Humboldt, where he is going to study forestry and fire. And the other is Will Harling, who I've known since he was a youngster, and now is the director of the Mid-Klamath Watershed Council, Mickwick, and uh, has been involved in fish and restoration of the river and taking down the dams in the Klamath and a lot of other important stuff that we'll get into. So I'm going to ask Will to do a land acknowledgement. Here we are on the Salmon River in far northwest California in the ancestral territory of the Kuduk people who have lived here since time immemorial, who have stewarded these rivers and mountains with care, with fire, with ceremony with intention and created an abundance that still exists here today that we continue to enjoy and profit off of. May we someday uh, remember our responsibility to this place and our responsibility to support the Kuduk people as they reclaim ownership and the rights to manage this land and, and the ways that benefited us and them for all of history. You know, I, I think that's a beautiful land acknowledgement, and I think it's important that we remind ourselves, not in a just a methodical or a performative way, but that we remind ourselves, anyone who stands on the freedom side, remind ourselves of the history of stolen land, stolen resources, murder, genocide, and remind ourselves that you know, we are a country that has this baked deep into our DNA, and we can pledge to stand side by side uh, in a commitment to repair and to a future fit for all human beings. So, appreciate that. Typically, we start with a poem, and since Will, among other things, is a poet, I asked him if he would bring a poem about fire and freedom and chop it up with us. Will, why don't you take it away? Let me burn. I have seen the fire next time. Let me burn. We don't have long to get this right. Let me burn. I can feel the balance of fire on this land. Let me burn through the day and through the night. Let us burn led by medicine men and thukin fire women. Let us burn to prepare for the return of fire ceremonies. Let us burn at the right time without all the required permits. Show me first the permit for a century of genocide and fire exclusion. I am not compliant with your suppression. Let us burn. Our salmon are dying. People are dying. Homes are burning. The most diverse conifer forests in the world. Now, skeletons, sentinels, let us burn in all but the birthing moons. 
This fire is medicine, and the patient is sick. Let us burn with a fire that prunes and clears where the brush is thick. Let us burn together. Let our fire reconnect us to this land. Let us burn Democrats and Republicans, Native people and cattlemen. Let us burn before it's too late. So much loss, my Soul is sick, the smoke comes in again thick. We breathe now the worst air quality in the world. The ceremonies can wait no longer. Now is the time as we enter the new year. They set fire to the spirit mountain. It singes the mother's hair loss with the promise of rebirth. Let them burn like they have for more than 10,000 years. Let us burn together. I am tired of living in fear. The time in the West is now. No joke. Change how we live with fire or watch all we love go up in smoke. Thank you, Will. Uh, Beautiful. You know, many years ago, when I first knew you as a firelighter, I was talking to myself about writing a novel. And I never wrote a novel because I don't know how. And, you know... I have many people in my extended family who do know how to write novels brilliantly. I don't write poetry. I don't write novels. But the title, the working title for my novel was based on watching a group of folks mobilize to fight one of the big fires that came right through here. And the working title was uh, The West is Burning. Mm. And I meant it to be both literal and figurative. And now here we are 20 years later, and the West is burning in both senses. I mean... We have got to get our shit together or else, right? Yeah. Uh, beautiful poem. Thank you. So, Will and Leaf, it's so great to have you here. Let's maybe start with the other night. Will, you are what's sometimes called a burn boss, correct? And uh, I'd be interested to tell our folks what that means. But maybe first, each of you could describe the other night. Uh, we did a burn of how many acres? Six acres. That was six acres. Wow. Well, we burned six acres. It took several hours. And the planning and the methodical way that it, that you went about it and the people you mobilized, including Karuk people, including folks from the Forest Service and elsewhere. But maybe you talk a bit Maybe first, Leaf, talk a bit about how you experienced the burn. That was your first, right? That was my first, yeah. So that was my first burn. As Bill described, I'll be going into fire and forestry. So kind of got me even more excited than I could ever imagine. I would say the highlight for me was seeing the elementary school kids holding a drip torch and actually lighting the fire. I mean, the thrill in their eyes, the look on their faces, it was incredible, thanks to Will. Yeah, it was an amazing evening. I mean, there were maybe 30 people here, some professionals who knew what they were doing. And a lot of us, I, I liked it that you assigned me to be an observer. Thank you. <laughs> so Pizza delivery. <laughs> yeah, actually, I got pizza. That's right. I delivered the pizza. But members of my family were both fire igniters and holders, what you call holders. But it was interesting to me that you decided... I've seen you burn before, but I've never seen you in the role of teaching a whole group of people, 30 people, including, as Leaf says, elementary school kids, about what it means to have fire as a generative, not destructive, but an important generative force of nature. Since 2014, we've been hosting the Klamath 
River Prescribed Fire Training Exchange every fall, which brings fire lighters from around the world, both local, indigenous, um, state and federal, but it's all within the what they call the NWCG, National Wildfire Coordinating Group standards. So everybody has to be trained. You have to be wearing the uniform of yellow and green, Nomex, personal protective clothing, and and it's regimented. And, and there's reasons for that, and they're good, right? Fire can be dangerous, and because of all the fuels in the West, we've created a monster out of fire. And so last week when we burned, it was really special for me because that is how we started burning here over 20 years ago was, was neighbors helping neighbors coming together to burn different places on the ground outside of all of that. And at its essence, fire has been in the hands of people globally to steward the land that they live in for abundance and indigenous peoples across the world have done that. And yet all across the world, fire has in most places, fire has been taken away from the people and is now in the hands of agencies, state and federal agencies. So for me, uh, this is kind of the, the culmination of a 20 year journey of getting back to where we started. We had to go through that process of getting the trust of the federal and state agencies. But now that we have that trust, we can come back to the root. And Leaf is so right. You know, for me, I've done a lot of burning. I've done over 300 burns uh, in the past 20 years. But that was the most special for me because to see that fire in the eyes of, of the youth and, and the, the beginning of that relationship, right? Because it is a relationship. Humans have related to fire since we were humans, and some could argue it's what made us human in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you talk about fire bringing abundance. I think a lot of people listening to this wouldn't have a clue as to what you mean. Maybe you could explain that both scientifically, culturally. How is fire bring abundance to people? So like we tend our gardens, right? We put all this care and we pull the weeds. We amend the soil. We provide water. Native peoples across the world use fire to do all those three things. Fire got rid of the weeds in the forest so that the food plants could grow strong and healthy. Fire got rid of the disease by killing the pathogens and bugs. Like here we are in a tan oak acorn grove that's been managed for centuries by Kuruk people to produce the highest quality energy acorns in, in the world, the tan oak acorn. Mm -hmm. Fire gets rid of a lot of those competing plants so that there's water in the soil for the plants that remain. And fire cycles nutrients. It takes hard material like wood and chops it down into biochar that then gets incorporated into the soil and becomes the home of mycorrhizae and fungi and bacteria that make the diversity in the soil what it is. So fire is what creates the bounty, the harvestable surplus of resources uh, across the world. And here, the Kuduk people would say when they were able to manage this land with fire, there would be 10 to 50 times more deer and elk 
because that grass was sweet mm. with nutrient. Now that grass is sour and has no no nutrient in it. You know, the berries were bigger and fatter because the sun actually hit the ground. So, so many ways that that fire is a regenerative force on the landscape. And, and because of that relationship that humans have with fire, they were able to be very specific about its application. So, just one mind-blowing fact that came from a recent uh, study in the Orleans-Somesbar area. Every year in that 600,000 acre landscape, there were 7,000 cultural ignitions, mm. which averages out to fires about four to 10 acres uh, every year. But pretty much across the entire landscape in places where it was, you know, creating abundance, whether that was basket materials or hunting areas or uh, medicine plants, uh, you know, the fire was doing or maintaining travel routes. So many reasons. And, and today we've simplified our relationship. We've, we've, uh, you know, kind of just looked at fire in this very narrow scope mm -hmm. of like, you know, this thing to be feared. Yeah. Whereas for all of human history, it was our greatest tool for managing landscapes. Up until about a little over a hundred years ago when government policy became put out every fire, right? Yeah. With the passage of the 1910 Weeks Act, which was, it's very interesting because the Weeks Act passed to allow for the Forest Service to have lands in the East, but the Western states wanted something out of the deal. And what they got out of the deal was authority to control fire. And implicit in that was that tribal treaty rights, sovereign tri tribal treaty rights were replaced where the federal government basically sold out tribal people in the West and gave power of fire to the states. Mm -hmm. And and I've always thought, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I've always thought the real estate interests had something to do with that too, that they wanted to get land that they could build you know, homes on, and sometimes they didn't care. They built, as they do in Louisiana, they build in a floodplain. Well, here they would build in fireplanes, which people knew was a, a mistake. But if there's money involved, I mean, somebody's going to do it. Is that your understanding as well? No, I think the history is pretty clear in California in particular, um, it was the timber interests uh, that got rid of fire, and, and in particular, the U.S. Forest Service. And the first regional forester in California, a man named S.B. Shaw, famously said, you know, we are embarking on an experiment of epic proportions, right. you know, to take fire out of this fire-adapted landscape. Uh, he didn't quite say it that eloquently, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, essentially, indigenous peoples had been managing and thinning forests with fire so that they were way more open. You had more oaks, you had more grasslands, you had more shrublands and meadows. And they were interested in conifers, in particular Douglas fir and redwood. And they knew right away, if you take fire out of the system, very quickly the Douglas fir and the redwood march into those open areas. And when they grow in a really tight, dense thicket, that makes the best timber. It's straight grain. There's no knots. And so they 
basically took fire out of the system so that all these open areas would convert to conifer for timber. And then they cut it down and they thought of the trees as in terms of bored feet, right? Um, yeah. Instead of in terms of a living ecology. And th and that's how they, I mean, so for example, the redwoods, I was talking to Greg King the other day, and the redwoods, you know, one giant redwood is, you know, hundreds of thousands of bored feet. So <clears throat> the greed takes over and the destruction of an entire environment um, becomes commonplace. Yeah. Back to the fire the other day, <clears throat> which I was a part of as a, quote, observer um, <clears throat> and pizza man. Um, what interested me, partly as an old teacher, is uh, that you had a pedagogy. You had an approach to teaching. Um, what were you What were you teaching? And maybe Leif chime in a little bit about what you were teaching and learning. But what were you, what were you teaching? How were you teaching? Uh, you know, things go well as a burn boss if you're doing very little, right? the The role of the burn boss is to set the intention, to set the goal and the end state, and to trust the the people who are working with you to implement the burn to share their knowledge with everybody else but ultimately the goal is to learn from the fire because at at the root of it all the fire is our teacher and so when we put fire on the ground it it shows us how to work with it and i don't know what you saw leaf yeah, well said. I mean, that's awesome. Um, I thought that this burn, I mean, it's kind of putting the torch in the hands of everyday people. I remember you talking and mentioning about how that should be kind of the long-term goal when it comes to fire and fire lighting. Uh, so that the average person, person should just be more knowledgeable about how fire works, um, how to light fire, how to hold fire, all of that. And exactly, that's exactly what the burn here did. It educated people. Were you nervous, Will? I was a little nervous. I mean, when we started the day, we were out on all of our prescription variables, as in it was too hot, the fuels were too dry, the humidity was too low. Uh, and the wind was too fast. <laughs> and here we had 15 fire qualified folks and about, you know, 40 non fire qualified folks like me, uh, like you, yeah. like me. Yeah. And, but it was just amazing. Like we, and this is the magic of fire is we just kind of circled up and we realized what structure would work for this situation. And what I saw was a lot of folks who had some inkling of fire became teachers. Like, Leaf, I saw you mentoring younger kids in your firing team. And mm -hmm. so we had four firing teams, each one led by a fire-qualified individual, 
some amazing folks, leaders from the Humboldt Prescribed Burn Association, Siskiyou Prescribed Burns Association, the Cutter Tribe Department of Natural Resources, uh, and the Salmon River Restoration Council. So, uh, just lovely teachers in their own right, but with with these herds of kids that all got a chance to have hands-on experience yeah. with, with fire in a safe environment. And I think in no time, Leaf, you're going to be fire qualified. I mean, I think yep. you're you're on your way, you're 18 years old and on your way to Cal Poly, but I think in no time, Will's going to hire you and <laughs> uh, you'll have a real, a real job. But, you know, you, you mentioned this thing about the fire as the teacher, and it's one of the most profound things about teaching in the way that I think of teaching is the teacher has to be the learner. If you think you know everything, the arrogance takes over and you stop communicating, you stop listening, you stop uh, being able to build the kind of relationship in which everybody's learning. So one of your um, team leaders, Henry, I said to him afterwards, um, wow, I was really impressed with all the things going on and how I was impressed that, that, in the wrap-up, Henry said, and you said, uh, we had this plan, but we had to modify it because the fire went this way. And you said, we had to just make some modifications. I said to Henry, that's really super smart. And he said, well, I've learned over the years that if you don't humble yourself to the fire, the fire will humble you. <laughs> that was another way of saying it that, yeah, that kind of blew my mind, you know, because it and I think that's a common across, in my approach to pedagogy, that's common. You know, I was thinking of, uh, I told Henry this actually, that the, the uh, I remember once reading about a beekeeper in Arkansas, and she kept, and Arkansas is a very, quite a varied and differentiated environment. And she said, beekeepers are an opinionated lot, and they argue about the best this, the best that, temperature, humidity, you know, and so on. She said, but what I've learned over the years is you have to learn from the bees themselves. The bees will tell you yeah. <laughs> what you need to do. I took that, I was very impressed the other night for for watching you do that and all of you, Leaf, you, the other fire igniters, the other holders, just in constant dialogue with each other and with the fire to know what to do. Yeah. Well, we have so many people every year that are affected negatively negatively by fire that we have to create opportunities for people to have positive experiences because the paradox with you know the fire paradox, every fire that we suppress, every fire that we put out just pushes that risk onto future generations. Mm -hmm. That fuel continues to grow and get more explosive and flammable. And so you know, to get back to that place where um, we're interacting with fire on the landscape, you know, basically this whole landscape, all of California was a fine grain mosaic of recent fires that were bumping into recent fires. You, you could travel anywhere, you could ride a horse anywhere. This was human habitat. Mm -hmm. And effectively, we're chasing the humans to the cities by taking fire out of the ecosystem because it's so dense. You can't even crawl through this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go over or under and it's, it's, it's not animal habitat. It's not human habitat anymore. So, you know, how we get more people 
wrapping their heads around the idea that the answer to fire is not less fire in a fire adapted ecosystem. It's more fire, but at the right time in the right place. Mm-hmm. You've used the word fuels, both of you. And I think a lot of people listening are thinking about a gas station or an electric generating plant. But when you use the word fuels, I know what you mean, but maybe you could explain what is fuel when it builds up in an environment like this. Absolutely. Well, when things grow, plants grow, and then they die and they create fuel. And if you don't have decomposition, like by the coast where it's really wet and things turn back into soil very quickly, that fuel accumulates. And in these Mediterranean environments where you have a wet winter that provides the water for growth, and then you have a very dry summer, a period with no no water, then it can really burn. Every year you can get high severity potential for high severity fires here if you have the fuel loading. So I like to say we essentially have a fuels crisis in the West because we've allowed this contiguous blanket of thick fuel to accumulate across millions and millions of acres. Whereas historically, that fuel bed would have been managed. Now you get a, a lightning strike in one spot at the wrong time of year, and that fire can burn for 100,000, 200,000, a million acres. So that here we are breathing the smoke from Canada, from Oregon. Um, this is what you're describing, right? It, this is the problem that exists. Yeah, I mean, we're still in the the fire suppression paradigm, which is if you get a fire start any time of year that's not planned, it's going to be put out. And and the reality is we're here in May and June and there's lightning storms and fires are starting in places like they have forever. And those fires would do good work. Those are the patchwork mosaic I'm talking about that break up the subsequent fires. And so if you put all out all the fires in May and June and July and October and November, December, you're selecting for the fires that are so extreme, not even the largest firefighting force on earth can put them out. And so you're maximizing impacts to communities, you're maximizing risk to firefighters, you're maximizing impacts to ecosystems, because those are the fires that burn hot and severe and kill everything. I think it's really interesting that you look into the fire record and the oldest trees show years, like in the 1600s, in the 1800s, when every tree, virtually every tree in Northern California and Southern Oregon has a fire scar. So we know that there was an extreme fire year or an extreme wind event. One fire burned everything. But the difference between then and now is that the trees survived. Right. There was so little fuel that the forest maintained. We have those same fires today. And with the last 100 plus years of fuels accumulation, everything would have died in those fires. We were very lucky a decade ago. I remember we were together. There was a fire that came very close to your house. Um, and there was several teams here uh, struggling to keep it under control and so on. Um, but I remember a year later, the forest looked so healthy because that fire 
We had high humidity, low wind. It never reached the canopy, but it burned for quite a, I mean, thousands of acres. And and it burned until October, I think, or November. Started in August. Um, But I remember thinking, wow, I I had never seen it up close like that. But it blew my mind that um, it actually cleaned up the forest in a very nice way. And the trees were all very happy 12 months later. Yeah, I mean, all fire is not equal, right? Low and moderate severity fires do that cleanup work and they they retain some of the forest structure and we get high severity fires and they pretty much kill everything. And now there's a lot of people uh, like the folks that just created this movie Elemental, which is making the rounds in the West right now, who believe that high severity fire at any scale is a good thing or a natural thing. And and a lot of those people are motivated to say that because they're anti-logging and, mm-hmm. and they oppose the, the clear cutting in the burned areas, the salvage logging that happens after the fires. And and I get that. But if you look historically, there was high severity fire, but it was on a very small scale. It was maybe one to 5% of any force, any fire you would have out on the landscape. And today we're seeing fires with high severity of over 70% at massive scales that we couldn't imagine uh you know and and since the last ice age so that's i think that's a really important thing is that you know yes there's a lot of beauty in the burn landscape in the high severity burn landscape you see all the flowers coming back because they're finally getting light you see some of the berry bushes coming back and for that first zero to five years after the high severity burn there's a lot of life that uses it but what they didn't do in that elemental movie was follow that landscape over time as the dead trees fall down onto the ground and then the fuels continue the live fuels grow up through that dead fuel and it makes a impenetrable landscape that's so loaded with fuels that second fire that comes and burns everything sterilizes the soil and that's when we see this this cascade of negative ecological events where that that soil gets so scarified and barren that it washes into the streams and it kills the salmon and it plugs the municipal water supplies and you know the and and basically millions of years of soil evolution and energy are lost they flowed out of the system and away and and away from this place and so that's that's the long game that we're playing right is we have to fix fire on this landscape so that 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 energy that's locked in our soil isn't lost for future generations but i hear you saying also that everything's connected the rivers are connected to the streams are connected to the fish are connected to the trees and fire and the fuel and all of it is one thing um so you're involved in so many things, um, salmon restoration, taking down dams in the Klamath River. Um, talk a bit about how all how you think about all the ways in which your working life and your personal life just come together, um, your relationships with uh, both the land and the animals and the fish and the people. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty rich mosaic. About a month ago, there was um, some BBC reporters 
that came to Orleans uh, to answer a listener's question. Can humans live in balance with nature, with the earth? And and my response was was based on, you know, watching the Karuk people and the Hoopa people and the Yurok people through ceremony, through the Pikyawish, the world renewal. Um, and I think the answer is yes. We can and have forever, right? Up until the modern era, we knew that you know, we had a responsibility to care for the land. And that care was rooted in us recognizing that we are ultimately within an ecosystem. We are tied to that land. And I think too often today, when people despoil a landscape, then they know they can just move to the next place. And that is what Western civilization is built on. But here in this one corner of the world, we're saying no, you mm -hmm. know, we're, there's nowhere left to run. Mm -hmm. We have to get right with the land. We have to get right with the first peoples and, and we have to create an example of, uh, you know, human fire relations, human fish relations, uh, that our survival is tied to the survival of all these living things around us and that we have relationships with with these things i'm just inviting you to oh yeah i mean i'm just listening into you and it's um you know i worry about modern world i worry about cities taking away that sense of connectedness you know and and this sense that you can always move on is such an arrogant western idea the ocean is infinite the territory is infinite we can just keep moving and moving right keep throwing stuff in the ocean because the ocean's infinite but obviously the ocean is not infinite and i think the alienation that comes from that sense that arrogant western sense i remember once <clears throat> When my kids were little, I was in a playground in Central Park, and it was at the point that Mount St. Helens had blown its top, the great volcano up in the Northwest. And um, I was talking to a couple of people in the playground, and somebody said, I can't believe this is happening in the 20th century in America. And I thought, what the hell? <laughs> what, what do you think? Because we've gone beyond earthquakes, we've gone beyond volcanoes, beyond the need to live in the world, we're above the world. And it, it just struck me as the most bizarre and innocent, but in a very kind of, with a little evil turn in it, you know? Can't believe this is happening in the modern world in America. Okay, maybe Nicaragua has volcanoes, right? <laughs> um, or maybe the 18th century, but not now, not us, but yes, us. And I don't know how we communicate that. I mean, I think you're doing a phenomenal job. I so admire, Leaf, what you're doing in terms of your choice to, um, you could do anything. You know, you're a bright kid from a, you know, really talented family. You could go yeah. anywhere and do anything, and you're going to do forestry and fire. I have nothing but admiration for that. <laughs> but, you know, how do we, what is to be done? How do we educate this generation, our people, our contemporaries? Well, the 
fire is humbling us right now, right? We're watching whole towns get wiped off the map across the West. And for the first time in a long time, the state and federal governments and the responsible agencies are throwing their hands up in the air and saying, we got to do something different. And they're turning to prescribed fire in a big way. People are turning to you, right? I mean, official people are actually saying, help me out here, Will, right? We, Yeah, I was part of the, the working group that created the state certified burn boss program and part of the working group that created the um, prescribed fire claims fund, which gives those uh, burn bosses um, $2 million in liability coverage and claims coverage for their burn because the reality is, you know, we've created a powder keg of fuels. There's no no risk solution. There's mm -hmm. going to be risk any road we take. And so too often you have good people who are in fire who don't want to risk their career by being responsible for putting fire on the ground. That's why I asked you if you were nervous, because I remember you saying at the beginning, I don't want, you told us what we had to do if we had to call 911. And then you said, but I'll be so embarrassed, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, for many years, like I would have recurring nightmares of like a fire getting away and burning down a friend's home or somebody in the community. And I, that's a healthy fear, right? There's, it's, impo it's important to have that healthy fear of fire, but we can't let it stop us. And so, so many of the incentives built into our legal system are propping up supp fire suppression. So all the negative impacts of fire suppression are kind of basically forgiven in our current legal structure. Like when we have, like I was talking about in the poem, you know, the worst air quality in the world here. Uh, at extremely hazardous levels. I mean, that's why I've got all this white hair, you know. My my kids have probably smoked the equivalent of about 10,000 packs of cigarettes in their young lives because of our mismanagement of smoke. And yet, there's this thing called the exceptional events rule that allows air quality managers to just kind of forgive that smoke as if it never happened. And, and because it was an exceptional event. Right. And now these, quote, exceptional events are happening almost every year. There's no except, that's, that's not how the word is meant right. to be interpreted. Right. It's not exceptional. It's real and it's not natural. It's human because mm -hmm. humans are the ones trying to take fire out of this fire dependent ecosystem. Right. You know, this uh, podcast focuses on freedom and, we talk a lot about the kind of American notion of freedom, which is me, 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 and it's my liberty to extract oil, to, uh, you know, exploit the land, to um, cut down, to do a clear cut in a redwood forest. I mean, that's my freedom. And that's one way of thinking of freedom. And then another way of thinking of freedom is more, much more connected. It's much more social. What does it mean to be to, to each of us find a kind of social freedom, a kind of collective freedom. And I'd be interested in you, because you've thought so deeply about these things, to tell us where we, where you think we might go from here, and especially thinking of Leaf just embarking on this um, life of, of fire and freedom um, and forestry, yeah. three Fs. How do you think about 
about freedom in this context? Well, freedom in this context is returning fire to everyday people, right? So even the agencies are saying, there's just no way for us to treat all the land we need to treat. But they're looking at it as agency people have to treat those lands. So imagine if just a thought exercise, if each one of us burned one acre per year, we would have far exceeded our goal for California if if everybody has a little bit of responsibility. Now, obviously, everybody in San Francisco isn't going to burn an acre, so maybe we have to burn five or ten. But I, you know, if you look at the United States, Florida never gave up their burning culture, largely because the consequences of not burning were so rapid. If you don't burn the Florida rough for ten years, you have an ex explosive time bomb that's going to mm -hmm. kill everything. And so they kept burning as they learned from native peoples in that mm -hmm. place and that tradition was never broken. And so Florida's roughly the same size as California. They have 2 million acres of prescribed fire every year and less than 50,000 acres of wildfire. Now look at California is the inverse. We have on average over 2 million acres of wildfire and less than 50,000 acres of prescribed fire. How do you want your fire? Uncontrolled at the worst time of year mm -hmm. or well-planned at the times of year when it's going to be most beneficial? And so it's not impossible for us to to get there. We we just need to empower people like they have in Florida by having gross negligence, right? Whereas in California, we have simple negligence, which is you can do everything right as a burn boss. And if you get an unpredicted wind that comes up and takes your fire and it causes damage to other properties, you know, you're, you're paying the price for something you had no control over. Mm. And so the consequences for trying to do the right thing with fire in California are very, very hard right now. We're trying to tilt the scales towards there being more ability. And, and we're having huge success. I mean, Sorry. this is a powerful time. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, the rise of prescribed burn associations, which were born in the Midwest and the Southeast. That model coming into California and being utilized to like, like we did recently, burning around here together, you know, community-led burn, where people aren't in the outfits of green and yellow and all the fancy PPE. It's, you know, common sense and a relationship with fire with some basic safety standards built in. And so, we're at the beginning of a really, I think, fruitful time of returning fire to the people. And, and in particular, I have to say, it's so important in this place that we, you know, it's returning fire to indigenous people because those, those first peoples are the ones who've been most affected by fire exclusion and, and fire suppression. You know, like Frank Lake, uh, a colleague uh, who's both indigenous and works for the federal government, the Pacific Southwest Research Station says, you know, these are fire dependent cultures without fire you can't have the cutter culture because all of so many ingredients from, you know, food, fiber, medicine, spirituality are tied to, 
to fire that without their ability to, and, and, you know, we're talking about rights, right? Mm -hmm. The same people that are claiming the right to bear arms are also the ones that are taking away people's right to use fire mm-hmm. as a tool. Mm-hmm. So what? let's talk about what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. rights are taken away, others are granted. So I think, you know, we need to return the right to responsibly use fire. I be- think it's a great, <clears throat> it's a great uh, coming around to the beginning because we're talking about freedom and fire and the community, the collective um, need to exercise its power its intelligence it's um it's freedom and i really i really appreciate that well listen i think we can bring this to an end but i can't tell you how much i appreciate every time i'm with you will i learn uh, an awful lot and um there's a lot of teaching still to do so let's keep chopping it up and and uh stay with it but thank you so much for your time leaf carlson will harling um appreciate your time Thanks, Bill. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the Generative and Provocative Podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a revitalizing fire. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time. So once again, um, we are having an addendum to a conversation that we already had. So Will Harling, welcome back. Um, when we were getting up to leave the other morning and we had had such a generative conversation about uh, fire and freedom and you read your remarkable poem and I really appreciate your time. But as we were getting up to leave, we began to talk about reparations but we had already turned the tape off. So I wanted to get you back on and maybe have you reflect for a minute on um, this question of what is it going to take both socially and individually for reparations and repair to become a real thing um, where you are and in the nation as a whole. Thanks, Bill. Well, um, as a lifelong resident, um, the Salmon and Klamath Rivers and the Western Klamath Mountains, um, you know, it's been a long journey to understanding the the roots of um, settler colonialism as it's been um, deployed on this landscape, and in particular with the Kuduk people, but also adjacent tribes, including the Hoopa, the Yurok, and many others. But um, those three tribes are the three largest tribes in California. Um, Many of their cultures and ceremonies are still intact, relatively intact compared with other um, tribes in the West. Um, but th- the reality of um, what we're seeing in our communities right now, um, a high rate of suicide, a high rate of opioid abuse, um, domestic violence, um, incarceration uh you know it's it's not a new story in the u.s but it's um very uh raw here um we we have some of the highest rates of suicide 
in in the country along the Klamath River and in particular with with tribal communities. Um, so, uh, and, and that's a legacy of colonialism in your mind, settler colonialism. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, when people are disconnected from their culture, when people are disconnected from livelihoods that connect them to their culture and they're forced to assimilate and they're forced and they're basically disempowered. Um, you know, that disempowerment comes out in, in many phases. And, and also what we see is this, um, the trauma, the, the trauma of, uh, genocide, um, the trauma of boarding schools, um, the trauma of having land stolen, um, and the trauma of witnessing these ecological and social disasters um, from wildfire um, that are stemming from their inability to perform their their um, ceremonial uh, and spiritual responsibility towards land management all contribute to um, you know, the, the malaise that we see in the community that's manifesting in many, many different forms. I mean, from the, the family across the street, um, where, you know, the, there, it was a, a known drug dealing center and then, uh, you know, the house burned down and now there's a shack and, and, you know, this weekend we get the word that the sheriff had to show up because they're stringing, uh, a bunch of extension cords from an outlet on our office building across some power lines and over the highway to to power their house, you know, to a good friend of mine who just um, you know decided to start uh, drinking again while on a fire assignment and ran over uh, uh, another uh, community member in the town of Happy Camp and is now in jail. You know, if you dig into their family histories, what you see is is that uh, contact era trauma was the reason why parents didn't show up to be parents. Was was the reason why um, you know we we are seeing. Um, you know, that, that trauma reflected in, in the present day. And so without people understanding the roots of, of um, you know, the, the disjunction in our community and the lack of services, especially for tribal people, um, it, it really stems from that, you know, the, both the, the colonialism of stealing land originally, but also the lack of services and the lack of public acknowledgement of how that plays out into the present day. But you also mentioned that um, when we repair this damage, both collectively as a nation, as a state, as a community, the repair is going to be open some wounds. There's going to be a lot of pain. Yeah. Speak to that. Yeah. Well, just a reflection that I shared with you uh, after our last recording, you know, during the Karuk indigenous women's treks that occurred here last fall, we had uh, women from over 65 uh, tribal nations from around the world um, uh, show up uh, to um, help the Karuk uh, indigenous women bring fire back to um, village sites in, in the Western Klamath Mountains. And there was a portion of that training that included, um, 
you know, bringing in uh, a high level, um, uh, uh, you know, justice, equity, diversion, inclusion um, facilitator um, from a large national nonprofit. And they opened up this door uh, during a, a couple hour session, you know, to talk about, you know, some of, some of the historical trauma and wounds. Um, and, and during, I, I was not present, but it really caused a huge rift between tribal and non-tribal participants in that event, because once that door was opened, there wasn't the resources to be able to hold that space for that pain that was shared. And so people with, you know, without that basket to hold that pain or the services to help deal with that pain, we're, we're seeing, you know, just the wounds exposed without the, you know, the bandage or the medicine, the appropriate medicine put on the bandage to allow healing. And so how do we, um, you know, consciously go about addressing those deep wounds in substantial ways that allows us to heal both as a community and and we talked um also about examples globally where that kind of trauma and that kind of hurt and that and and also the healing have occurred um and and you you mentioned south america or south africa and and um you know i i think there are many powerful parallels that you know give me hope that that is possible here and and uh, just a final piece on what happened at the Karuk Indigenous Women's Treks was afterwards, um, Amy Cardinal Christensen, who's a, a Métis tribal woman from Canada, was there. And, and we were talking about the need for um, truth and, and reconciliation. And she very quickly corrected me. And she says, no, it's not reconciliation. It's reparations. It's, you know, what are you actually giving to us? Because without um, reparations there can be no reconciliation you know there has to be a substantial gift yeah i think that this is a long 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 conversation you and i and really the entire country is going to have to have over many years but she's absolutely right we have to tell the truth about what happened and we're not there yet uh, this country is the united states of amnesia hates mm -hmm. to tell the truth about itself um but once we tell the truth it's not just you rush from truth to reconciliation. There's truth, then repair, then reconciliation. If I honestly tell you I went through the red light and banged into your car, that's good. I told you the truth. But I can't reconcile with you until I'm willing to pay for the repairs of your car. I mean, it's just straightforward. The other example I'll leave us with is the example of Chicago where they, um, you know, we, we got reparations for torture victims of John Burge, the, uh, Area 2 commander who tortured hundreds of black men and many went to death row. And once this was exposed and the truth was out there, and that took years and years and years, that didn't solve the problem. We won from the city, not only an admission of responsibility and guilt, we won concrete reparations, money for the victims, the survivors, money for their families, college, um, the right to go to school, uh, have their tuition paid um, at college, community college, and even more. And we also got the city to agree to pay for a torture justice memorial. And every mayor dragged his feet on that until we elected the progressive 
Brandon Johnson, former teacher, former community organizer, he committed $2 million just like that. So we're going to have a torture justice memorial. We've got $100,000 for every victim of the torture. We've got community college for their kids and their grandkids. And that's not everything and it's not enough, but it's a beginning. So I really appreciate your wisdom on this, Will. And maybe next time we sit down to talk, we'll have to have a couple of these women uh, that you work with. Maybe we'll have to invite Ron and Bill. And maybe we'll have a, a, a deeper conversation. Maybe we'll have a circle and talk about this question and and face up to some of what we have to personally face up to as well as what we have to face as a community. Absolutely. And, you know, just reflecting on the two and a half years I spent as part of an unsettling work group of non-Native folks from this community, um, you know, what we heard when we did finally meet with several um, tribal leaders, tribal families in this area was that um, they have busy lives and this is not their work to do. This is our work to do. So true. And, and so, true. so I, I think if it's going to work, it's going to be us non-Native folks in this community um, putting our time and effort into what does that truth telling and what do those reparations, substantial reparations look like so that, um, you know, there's, there's a large work uh, uh, effort done when we're inviting them to the table and perhaps they would talk about it first, but I, I think, and, and it's good to get guidance along the way, but um, you know, it's clear this is our work to do. Couldn't be clearer and couldn't be more to the point. Will, I thank you again for your time, for your wisdom, for your leadership, and for teaching me how to light a fire. <laughs> well, Bill, I, it would take too long for me to thank you for all the things you, the gifts you've given me. So keep it up, comrade. Comrades, comrades, arm to arm, heart to heart in the struggle. Love you, man.